Just a quick note before we begin. This episode contains descriptions of violence, which some listeners may find upsetting. In April of last year, Guardian Sligo went on the hunt for a serial killer. A town in shock. Sligo woke to news of the discovery of a man's body in this quiet cul-de-sac off the Connaughton Road, the second such incident in as many days. In the space of just two days, two men, Michael Snee and Aidan Moffat, were found murdered in their own homes. A third man, Anthony Burke, was viciously attacked a few days earlier. He was blinded in one eye. The three victims were all gay men who had met their attacker online. With no immediate suspect, the Garth investigation quickly became a race against time to find the killer before he struck again. It's just so sad. I can't believe this could happen in a place like Sligo. We're all devastated, all the local community. It's just shocking. Anthony Burke told Garthy he'd met his attacker on a dating app. With his help, they alerted the gay community in Sligo that a dangerous man was targeting Irish men who lived alone. Eventually, with the help of Burke and other witnesses, Garthy tracked down their suspect. A 22-year-old man has appeared in court, charged with the murders of two men in Sligo. Yusuf Polani from Markovic Heights in Sligo was charged with the murder of Aidan Moffat at the victim's home on the 10th of April and with the murder of Michael Snee at his home two days later. He also faces a third charge of assault causing serious harm. This week, 18 months on from his killing spree, Yusuf Polani was handed down two life sentences for the murders. He was also sentenced to 20 years for his attack on Anthony Burke. In this episode, crime and security correspondent Conor Gallagher outlines the timeline of these events, how Garthy finally caught their killer and the unanswered questions that remain. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Pollock. Today, the case of Yusef Palani and the Sligo murders that shocked the nation. Connor, in July of this year, Youssef Palani pleaded guilty to three charges. The murders of Aidan Moffat and Michael Snee and the serious assault of Anthony Burke. But we've heard relatively little about Youssef Palani himself. Uh, Connor, who is this man? Where did he grow up and, and what do we know about him? I suppose to go back to the start, uh, Palani and his families, and it's a large family, uh, he has seven siblings Ethnically, they're Kurdish, and they uh, lived in Iraq um, until Palani was around six years of age, mm. and they fled Iraq. This was been shortly after the fall of, of Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. and so Iraq was obviously in chaos at the time. Uh, they spent some time in refugee camps uh, in different parts of the world, including Jordan, before uh, arriving in Ireland as part of a UN uh, refugee resettlement program. They moved into a house in Markiewicz uh, Heights in um, in Sligo. People might know it as being right beside uh, Markiewicz Park, um, the well-known GAA ground there. And that's where the Polanis have lived ever since. Youssef uh, himself went to the local school, primary school and secondary school, wasn't particularly academically gifted, used to get in a bit of trouble around the town, but not to the extent that it resulted in in criminal charges. Mm. Um, you know, he had friends, but didn't have a huge circle of friends. The family were Muslim, but not particularly observant Muslims. So they would have, uh, I believe, sporadically attended the, the local mosque there in Sligo. Polani went to uh, a local IT for a period of time, but never finished his studies. 
at the time of these events, he was unemployed and, and doesn't appear to have ever held down a job for, for any length of time. Okay. So uh, for want of a better word, it seemed he was a bit of a drifter, um, still living at home with the parents, didn't have much purpose. And, uh, and that kind of takes us up to the point where this shocking spree of violence started. So let's talk about that, Connor. How did it all begin in Sligo in April 2022? How did Yusuf Palani first make contact with these three men? So Palani used the well-known gay dating app Grinder, you know, which is the same as Tinder, but just for with a focus on the LGBT community. And he set up a profile. He went by the name Joe King, didn't use his real name, began chatting with a good number of men in the Sligo area. And one of those men was Anthony Burke, now 50-year-old bartender who's lived all his life in, in Sligo town. I met Anthony Burke last week, got the train up to Sligo and sat down with, with Anthony uh, where he told me about that night in April 2022. I suppose maybe if you wouldn't mind taking me through the run-up to the, the assault, if, 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 if you don't mind. No, um, I met him on Grinder on the Wednesday. So they got chatting as you do and they arranged to meet up on April 7th. Um, Polanyi cycled his mountain bike uh, the short distance from his home to the home of uh, Mr. Burke. As we were chatting, he claimed that he had to stay in my house till about one o'clock because his parents weren't in his house. Right. But, but following that, it was for him to get to befriend me. He wanted to stay in my house, so we chatted. And I just chatted about um, what was his interest. You'd never met him before? Until the Wednesday, no. Okay. They got chatting. Mr. Burke asked him about his interests and asked him um, about uh, who else he'd been chatting to on on the app. And Polanyi mentioned a few names that would become very important later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Polanyi talked about his uh, interest in tying people up, you know, and and getting some sort of sexual pleasure uh, out of that. I asked him what's he into, and he told me he was into tying people up. Right, yeah. And he showed me the ropes. Okay. Told him, no. not interested, yeah. to go away. So I got him out of the house. So he kind of ushered him out the door, and that was that until, I believe, two days later. And they were chatting again. They were chatting. The chats had moved over to this uh, other app called Kick, K-I-K. And that's uh, a, a messaging app with a, a real focus on anonymity. So you don't need an email address or a phone number to sign up. So kind of anyone can sign up and mm-hmm. maintain complete anonymity. They chatted about lots of things. Polanyi kept bringing up his desire to, to tie people up. And it was agreed they would meet up again that evening. Um, so again... Polanyi rode his mountain bike down to to Anthony Burke's house. Um, There was some consensual sexual activity between the pair, but Mr. Burke had no interest in taking it further. And Polanyi's obsession, I think it's fair to call it, with tying people up and he actually Mm. had a rope with him, was really putting Mr. Burke off. And he was also a little bit put off by the fact that Polanyi was wearing a jacket and Mr. Burke asked him to to take the jacket off and he said no. I asked him... um to take off his jacket and he wouldn't take off his jacket only till I found out afterwards that he had a knife in his jacket and that's why he wouldn't take off his jacket so he had a knife ready to go yeah again Burke kind of ushered him out the door walked him up the roads uh, towards the cemetery he wanted to kind of 
get him out of the area and get him away from the house while not offending him. But after an hour or two, I said, look, go again. So it took me a while to try and get him out of the house. He left his phone in my house at one stage. I eventually got the phone, got him out of the house. I walked him up so I could get him out. Once they're far enough away, Mr. Burke said, OK, good night, see ya. Turned to, to walk home. At that point, Polanyi uh, attacked him. He cycled his bike towards him and shoved this knife into his eye. He was very, very close to being killed. The, the, the ambulance crew said that the size of the knife, if he had gone any further, would have hit the brain. I see. Right, yeah. Mr. Burke asked him why, but he didn't get a response. Polanyi just stared at him and Mr. Burke said it. he felt it was like Polanyi was waiting for him to collapse. And if he did collapse, he would have finished the job. But Mr. Burke managed to, to stay conscious. Polanyi cycled off and, and, and Anthony phoned 999 and, and was taken to hospital. That first attack was on April 9th, uh, the attack on Anthony Burke. The next two incidents happened very quickly afterwards, didn't they? The next two uh, attacks happened in, in short succession. Uh, so on the 10th, Aidan Moffat, who was a successful local businessman, heavily involved in the local Fine Gael party, very popular, well-liked person in the community. He'd had a really good week uh, in his business from a financial point of view, and he was uh, celebrating a little bit. He went out and met some friends in the village inn for a few drinks before arriving home uh, in the mid-afternoon. Very soon after he arrived home, CCTV picked up a... Uh, a man, a hooded man, arriving at his home. An hour later, the camera picked up this man leaving the home on, on a bicycle. Obviously, that man was uh, Polanyi. During that hour he spent in the home, we don't know exactly what happened, and, and we never will, um, except for the fact that Polanyi tied up uh, Mr. Moffat's hands, stabbed him many, many times, um, and uh, mutilated his body. Uh, including uh, decapitating him and placing the head on 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 the bed, and um, it seemed like there was maybe some attempt to clean up as well. There was a bottle of bleach there, mm. um, and the the knife had been placed in Mister Moffat's hands, and that was the scene that greeted Mister Moffat's friends when they arrived the next day. You know, Mister Moffat had a a wide circle of friends who would be in touch with quite regularly, but he wasn't answering the phone, so they became concerned and and went into the house and. Um, and were greeted with this uh, horrific sight. That brings us to uh, Michael Snee, who is a 58-year-old hospital porter and carer in a local hospital, and a quiet man with a dry sense of humour, kind of a good storyteller, you know, family man. And like Mr. Moffat and Mr. Burke, he lived alone in, in, in his home. And this was another person Polanyi was speaking to um, on the apps. And it appears Polanyi um, arrived at his home, similar to, to Mr. Moffat, tied him up and stabbed him multiple times, a huge number of times. And before arranging two knives in the shape of a cross on the bed, and again, trying to use bleach in a vain attempt to, to clean the scene. But, you know, there was blood everywhere that was clearly not going to happen. And Mr. Uh, at, that, at that point, Mr. Polanyi fled. Miss, uh, by this stage, Gardy had put out a warning 
um, and I, I publicly said they're looking for someone in connection with, with these attacks and they'd warned people to be careful about who they were talking to online and be careful about meeting up with someone online. At the time, they didn't specify that gay men were being targeted, but that soon leaked out and, and, and it was widely covered in the media. Uh, so Mr. Sneeze nieces had heard this warning and they wanted to make sure their uncle had heard it and they wanted to make sure he was safe. So they called over to, to his home and unfortunately they were also discovered his, his body and it was obviously incredibly distressing for them. Palani was actually arrested quite soon after all this happened. He was arrested on after midnight on April the 13th. How did Garthi track him down so quickly? It was quite an unusual manhunt. The day Mr. Moffat's remains were found, Gardy called to the home uh, of Mr. Burke, his first victim and the man who survived the attack. They said, Anthony, there's a man dead. And, and, and Mr. Burke was actually able to tell them it was Aidan Moffat because they had discussed him and Polanyi, who Polanyi had been talking to on, on the apps. So they enlisted the help of Mr. Burke and Mr. Burke sat down with the Gardaí and went through Grinder, looking for other men in Sligo who might be potential targets, so gay men who, who lived alone. And then Mr. Burke actually went out with the Gardaí. You see this um, strange scene of a convoy of eight or nine uh, cars with heavily armed Gardaí and Mr. Burke in the back of one car driving around Sligo visiting the homes of, of gay men uh, to warn them well to check they were okay first of all and to warn them and uh, Mr Burke actually had Grinder open at the time and, and, and the app has a feature where it will tell you how far away a potential match is but it won't mm. tell you where they are so it will mm. say someone is so many metres away and at one point he saw Polanyi under his fake name that he was 500 metres away but frustratingly it couldn't say 500 metres in what direction Gardy were also concerned for Mr Burke's safety and and, and Mr Burke was concerned for his own safety what if Polanyi was to come back and finish the job so they put him up in a hotel and put a guard outside the door they continued their inquiries by this stage they got a photograph of Polanyi but they still didn't know his name or address and they sold this around the town particularly to other members of the community with a Middle Eastern background who might have uh, socialised with the family and one of these uh, men was able to identify Polanyi and give an address. They went up to Markievicz Heights at a half one in the morning, formed a cordon around the house. You know, these armed guardie, they evacuated the neighbours. They shone a very bright spotlight into the house. And one by one, they ordered the family members to come out. And they were worried, you know, they knew Polanyi was capable of incredible violence. So they were obviously worried he would resist arrest. It turned out Polanyi went peacefully. And, and was taken to Sligo Garda Station where he was interviewed multiple times. Connor, last week you spoke to Anthony Burke, the local Sligo man who survived Polanyi's first attack, who you've mentioned already. What did he tell you about himself? I suppose my first impressions were he's an incredibly resilient man, um, a very impressive man, but there's a tremendous sadness about him and sense of betrayal and anger mm-hmm. I think at the way the whole process has worked out obviously first and foremost anger at, at, at Polanyi you know so Polanyi has robbed him of the sight in one eye um, he's it's going to severely limit his job opportunities he's not going to be able to drive for a living for example 
and he's become very much more introverted, nervous around uh, big crowds. He said the people of Sligo have been really, really supportive. And indeed, there was a GoFundMe set up, which raised thousands of euro for his medical care. But um, we heard in court, you know, there's people will look at him and stare and, and it, he's frustrated that when people look at him they will always associate him with these uh, horrible events and I suppose one of the biggest frustrations for Anthony is Anthony is a gay man but he's kept that to himself yeah. for his whole life um, he didn't want to come out uh, he had no desire to come out he was happy enough um, with the way things were but the events of April last year forced him to come out against his will and he's not comfortable with that yeah you know and that agency has been taken away from him which is you know a, quite a big deal i don't socialize as much i know i was conscious mm-hmm. everyone is you know knows me now as gay and knows me now as with this with this murder How did Anthony feel after he was discharged from hospital? Because there was a gap between when he was attacked and discharged from hospital and when Garthi actually offered him protection. And there was a time when his attacker was still at large. How was he feeling at home? He was terrified. So he was released from hospital relatively quickly, given that the, the serious injuries he had um, would obviously have to go back many more times later. Uh, and once he got home, he basically imprisoned himself in his home because he was he knew what, what Polanyi was capable of. He'd witnessed it firsthand. So I was afraid that he'd come back and yeah. I wouldn't let anyone into the house. The guards had to fucking speak through the letterbox. I wouldn't let no one in. Really? Yeah. So he locked the door. He armed himself with a stick. Uh, he wouldn't let anyone in. So he mm. was very, very scared during those two or three days between the release from hospital and uh, the guardie coming to him again. Of course. When you met him last week, Anthony actually told you that he was unhappy with how the Gardaí handled the investigation. Why was that? Well, first and foremost, he, I think he felt that the Gardaí uh, could have done more to catch Polanyi at an early stage. He said he felt like they were treating it as kind of a drunken assault or some more run-of-the-mill assault um, that, you know, fill up our emergency departments every every weekend. You know, it, it's hard to say whether Gardy could have done more or less. Hindsight is twenty twenty in these cases, but he does feel that they they could have moved a bit faster in in that respect. Mm-hmm. But he's also unhappy with the authorities in how the the charges were brought and and ultimately um, how Polanyi uh, answered for his crimes in court. So uh, on Monday, Polanyi was sentenced for. Uh, the murder of Mr. Snee and Mr. Moffat, and he was sentenced for the assault causing serious harm of Mr. Burke. Now, Polanyi was actually originally charged with the attempted murder of Mr. Burke, which makes sense. You know, he drove a knife into his eye. It's clear he meant to kill him. But that deal was was reached where Polanyi would actually plead guilty and in return the state would reduce the attempted murder charge to a charge of assault causing serious harm. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't make much difference. Uh, murder in this country carries a mandatory life sentence. So even if he was uh, sentenced for attempted murder, it's unlikely he would spend any more time in prison. But for Anthony, it's a matter of principle. Mm. He feels that his the attack on him is being treated as kind of a drunken assault, that he's an afterthought in the whole thing. Yeah. You know, that his 
trauma is not being taken into account by the state. Now, in fairness, uh, Miss Justice Mary Ellen Ring spent an awful lot of time reviewing the evidence and, and Mr. Burke's victim impact statement yesterday and was full of praise for him uh, yesterday and actually imposed a very, very long sentence for the, the assault charge, a 20-year sentence, which would be really at the upper end of the scale. So I think on, on one level, she recognised that and wanted to mark the seriousness of the, the attack against Mr. Burke by imposing this very, very long sentence. But that sentence will run alongside the two life sentences. So in practical terms, it's unlikely he'll serve any more time in prison. Connor, Polanyi originally indicated that he was going to plead not guilty, but eventually he changed his plea to guilty after a number of psychiatric tests. Why was that? It was clear from the start that Polanyi was trying to run an insanity defence. Um, mm-hmm. During his Garda interviews, when he was admitting to all of this, he was also saying that uh, he was hearing voices in his head, that he'd been out of it for the last six years, that he suffers from depression and other mental health issues. Um, and he said it was the voices that caused them to target these men and, and commit uh, violence. Garda were sceptical at the time, and they're still sceptical. Various uh, psychiatric assessments were carried out uh, by the defence and Polanyi actually went to the Central Mental Hospital for a period for an assessment. And all the results came back. You know, he might be a very disturbed man. He might be a very cruel man. He might even suffer from severe depression, but he wasn't insane. And insanity in criminal law is a very specific thing. You know, you have to prove a series of, of, of things such as that you don't know the nature of your actions, that you didn't know the difference between right and wrong, etc., etc. And he could tick none of those boxes. So those psychiatric reports were never presented in court because they didn't help his case. Uh, so Polanyi had initially indicated he was going to plead not guilty and it was clear that there was going to be some sort of uh, insanity or diminished responsibility defence run. But when the legs were taken out from that, uh, he changed legal team and changed his not guilty plea to guilty. Now, the nature of murder uh, cases is... Because it's a mandatory life sentence, a lot of people, even if the evidence against them is huge, will plead not guilty because they might as well take the chance. They might as well, quote unquote, spin the wheel. But in Polanyi's case, there was no wheel to spin. There was literally no defense he could have offered. The, you know, the, the, the eyewitness testimony, the digital evidence, the forensic evidence and his admissions. Uh, you know, the case against him was airtight. So, you know, there was very little point in pleading uh, not guilty. Coming up, why did Polanyi do it? And why did he have hundreds of thousands of euro in a suitcase under his bed? I continue my conversation with Conor Gallagher. Conor, this was a pretty horrific case when it came to gruesome details of the murders. What can you tell us about how his killings were discussed and analysed in court? Um, I suppose we were all prepared for this to be quite a distressing case uh, and the facts of it to be quite distressing. Some of those details had already emerged uh, in the media, but well, I personally wasn't prepared for it to be quite as graphic as it was. And mm. I can only imagine how difficult it was for the families. And, and there was lots of family members of both men in court. You know, we heard about the extent of the, the injuries inflicted on both men who were fatally attacked dozens of knife wounds and in the case of Mr. Moffat, the decapitation 
um, and, and the placing of his head in such a way as it faced the door as the people who found their remains walked in. Um, so that was obviously quite shocking and distressing. I suppose I should also say that the families, um, and particularly the, the family and friends of Mr. Moffat, were very distressed by the media reports at the time and had a lot to say about that in, in the victim impact statements. They felt mm. some of the media reporting after the murder was very sensationalist, mm. uh, disrespectful. You know, the approaches made uh, looking for interviews were, were disrespectful. Um, and a friend of Mr. Moffat actually, in his victim impact report, a man called uh, Blaine Gaffley, suggested the introduction of maybe some legislation to protect the families of murder victims from the press, maybe a, a some sort of waiting period before reporting certain details. I'm not sure of the exact details he was proposing, but it was something as, as noted mm. as well by Miss Justice Ring in her sentencing remarks that these men are more than just headlines they're and they're more than just the circumstances of their deaths they're they're men who led led full happy lives Mm -hmm. and the gruesome circumstances of their deaths shouldn't take away from that the sentencing heard connor that polanyi would have continued to kill gay men had he not been arrested that's quite chilling did the court hear anything about any plan he might have had to kill more men in the area well, we heard a good bit about his uh, MO, about how he only targeted men who lived alone, obviously men who were gay, and uh, Irish men, specifically Irish men. And he made very, he made sure that his victims were Irish before meeting up with them. And um, so it's clear that had he not been caught, that yes, he was going to continue uh, killing and Gardy are firmly of that view that he was going to, to continue killing. On the other hand, you know, while he used the fake name uh, on, on the apps, um, he wasn't very forensically aware. I mean, they found his DNA in multiple locations. Um, he lived very close to all three victims. So it was only a matter of time before he was going to be caught. Uh, you know, in in one level, these were carefully planned out crimes, but on another level, they, they weren't sophisticated. He was going to be caught. It was just a matter, I suppose, of how many victims um, he would be able to target before he was caught. Connor, why do we think Polanyi did these horrific things? Yeah, it's a straightforward question, which unfortunately, based on the information we've got, doesn't have a straightforward answer. So, for example, Gardy initially thought maybe these were terror-related, the barbaric nature of the the attacks, the fact that he targeted gay Irish men, the fact that he was a Muslim and in, in, in his interviews referenced the fact that homosexuality is a sin under Islam, put it in the minds of Gardaí that maybe there's a, a Islamic terror aspect to this. A very unusual find in Polanyi's home only added fuel to those suspicions. Uh, during the search of the home, a very extensive search, Gardy found €350,000 in cash in two suitcases in the home. So that obviously raised suspicions of is there an outside individual or organisation sending money to, to Polanyi? So extensive investigations were conducted by uh, anti-terrorism Gardy. Um, they made checks with international intelligence agencies such as the FBI and MI6 and, and, and EU intelligence agencies just to see if Polanyi was on their radar at all and nothing came back. Gardy obviously went through his phones and his computers um, for evidence of you know influence of um, Islamic uh, terrorism and they didn't find anything. To the extent that Gardy were able to say definitively that he was not radicalised. On the other hand, Gardy said that he targeted 
his victims because they were gay men. He targeted the three men out of a, quote, hostility and prejudice towards uh, homosexual men. The role of religion in that, we didn't hear much of that. We heard in his interviews his references to Islam, but we didn't hear if he was motivated by his religion. Um, but he was certainly motivated by a hatred of gay men. So I suppose you could say perhaps it's not terrorism, but it's certainly a, a hate crime. You know, I suppose it depends on your definition of, of those terms. Uh, another I suppose strange aspect is Polanyi repeatedly and was at pains to insist in his Garda interviews that he was not gay, that he never had sexual contact uh, with any of the people that he met, that the only reason he was on these apps was to target these men. But we heard pretty clear forensic evidence that he uh, he engaged in, in, in sexual activity with at least one man, consensual sexual activity. So, you know, there's isn't a neat answer to this. And unfortunately, that's the nature of of, of of a lot of these horrible crimes. They don't necessarily fit neatly into a category. Has Polanyi shown any remorse for what he did? Well, we had a, a defence plea in mitigation yesterday. Now, it was very short, two minutes long, uh, Max. Um, it didn't give us any further insight into his motivations, but through his barrister, Polanyi did offer his apologies, says he's can't fathom the enormity of the, the hurt he's caused on the families and on the men and the local community, and did offer some form of, of contrition. But, you know, it was perfunctory at best, uh, I think is fair to say. That's all for today. For more of Conor Gallagher's reporting on the Yusuf Polanyi case, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Chapalak. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>